You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be there this morning. I'm really grateful to be here. So excited to be with you this morning here in Lawrence with this church family. You all are sort of a, a golden church in the eyes of countryside. That might seem a little bit strange, but people talk about you all every week. And every time it's with a tone of excitement, tone of joy, uh, everyone is excited about what God is doing here. And not just because your worship leader sounds way better than ours, or because your website is way faster and cleaner than ours, but at Countryside, we're enamored with the work that God is doing here. God is actively building something in this church body that is truly special. And while we truly love Redemption Hill, our church family here, and we're strengthened at Countryside in our faith, hearing of God's works here, we're only able to see it from a distance. That is, we cannot see from afar the day-to-day life that you all share. So we don't see things like who is actively engaged, who is giving and receiving counsel, who's at the front door on Sunday mornings greeting people as they come in. We don't see who is invested in small groups. We don't see the feelings that get hurt or those who feel left out. We don't see needs that are unmet. So in many ways, you're a golden church in our eyes because we're only able to see the the positive things from a distance, the working of God's hands in the many praiseworthy things that he has done. But what I want to do this morning is to bring you a charge from the Apostle Paul that I am praying will be of immense benefit. Because I believe that you are in a position where many exciting and successful and growing churches find themselves falling into the pits of pain and chaos. And it's the danger of division. We typically think that, that church splits and major divisions only take place, or at least most of the time, take places in churches with little theology or at least weak theology and without solid teaching. And that's not always accurate. Redemption Hill is strong in doctrine, intentional in its teaching ministries, and yet is vulnerable to a potential embedding of division that could yield devastation. And so if you'll stand with me just for a moment, I know, we, I know we've stood and sat a few times, but let's read the first four verses only of Philippians chapter 2. Follow as I read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one 
mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Lord, as we enter now into this time together, I pray that you would be visible, not me, that your desire would be met, not mine, that your words would be heard, not mine, and that you would impact our hearts this morning and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. You might be surprised this morning to hear a message that's sober from Philippians, because this is the happiest of Paul's epistles. But as we dive further this morning, I think we'll discover that Paul is addressing a a local church that's very much like Redemption Hill. When we read about the Philippian church, it was strong in doctrine. It was known for its thriving community. And I think that that's familiar to you. You have solid teaching, a great team of deacons and many others serving the body. And that's a great blessing. It's a great blessing. And on top of the the teaching and leadership, you're blessed with a growing and thriving fellowship. I even noticed that this morning before the service, just watching and seeing people connecting with one another and engaging joyfully. You're blessed with this beautiful facility and steady growth in numbers even over the past two years. God is blessing this church family with more people to serve and disciple. And that's the kind of church that we see Paul addressing In many ways, we can conclude that this Philippian church is a very healthy church. And if you turn back a page to chapter 1, he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This was a gospel-centered church. They labored with Paul in the work of the gospel. And that says something about their focus and their vision as a church. He says in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 1, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, and in in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this church was dear to Paul. His affection for them is described in chapter 1 in a very vivid way. And this was because of the love that they demonstrated by their ministry to Paul while he was in prison. In fact, this was the one church that made it their mission to minister to Paul during his imprisonment in that time. He says in verse 19 of chapter 1, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So they had a faithful ministry of prayer. This is a praying church. 
So it's a gospel-centered church. It's a loving church. It's a faithful church. It's a praying church. And we also see in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is an obedient church. Paul describes them as being obedient when he was in their midst, and they were known for that. And we can, because of Paul's authority, we can conclude that in that was obedience to the word of God. This church was also marked by compassion. In fact, they sent one of their own great servant leaders in their church to minister to Paul, and that kind of backfired for a little bit because he got sick and almost died. But it demonstrated their compassion for Paul in a great way that's described. We won't read through that, but described in chapter 2. And in chapter 4, Paul is expressing his appreciation for their love and compassion. He goes as far as calling them his joy and his crown. And that seems like a neat church, doesn't it? That seems like a neat church. They were abounding in love. They were a gospel-centered church. They had a faithful ministry of prayer. They were marked by obedience. They were compassionate. And all of those things are evidences of God's hand of grace that are also visible here in your midst. So I'm not preaching this morning with the sole purpose of praising the Philippian church and praising you all. I'm moved to preach to you today because in all of the evidences of this thriving church, there was a very real and dark evil presence creeping in among the people. This church was in danger. The danger was division. We actually see that throughout the epistle, addressed at the heart level in each chapter. And while we know that the book of Philippians is about joy in Christ, that is the theme While that is the theme, Paul goes through each chapter laying out the theology of true joy in Christ, but that came about in the face of this danger that was creeping in to their midst. It was a danger that could potentially bring this joyful church to destruction. You might think, well, how in the world could this happen? How could this exciting and growing family here become a place of division? Well, it doesn't begin with some major event or major crisis. It starts on a personal level. It starts when you hear or see someone do one of three things. Either separate themselves from others, promote themselves and their wisdom, or when you hear someone begin to speak negatively about others or maybe the direction and vision of the deacons and pastors here. It's a lot easier in a church where people care so much for some people to experience an inner burning desire to be promoted in either their wisdom or opinions, and it's tempting. 
Seeing and feeling the camaraderie and deep sense of love is a greater place for anyone to want just a little bit more of that directed at them. Think with me just for a moment. In a church where people generally don't care and people generally aren't real with each other and open, there's really not the same kind of temptation to be promoted. Why? Well, because no one really cares that much. And only a very few place high value in what is going on. But in a place where people put such high value on others and invest so much of themselves in others, it starts to look like there's quite a platform for that person who wants to be prominent. It's especially in this kind of caring, feeling, thriving community that when something like a new budget or a new ministry or a new staff member gets promoted or recognized, little seeds of dissension, jealousy, and distaste for others can begin to swirl. Since we feel so strongly about truth and about direction, we can begin to fly higher and higher the flags of our own personal opinions and desires. That's how division is born in a joyful church. William Barclay once said, there's a sense in which this is the danger of every healthy church. You see, it's when people are really in earnest when their beliefs really matter to them, when they're eager to carry out their own plans and their own schemes that they're most apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. As we look at the text before us today, I want to unpack Paul's remedies for division. It's actually these four remedies that fuel us to a greater and deeper, more fierce joy in Christ. And they also fight against selfish dissension and personal division. I think that's something that we want. I think that's something that you want. I know at Countryside, that's something that we're also in danger of. We're in danger of people being divided. In, in any assembly, that is the case. I hope that this morning the Spirit of God uses these words from this text to help us fight against the nature of our flesh that turns to self-value and pride. Here's the first charge from verse 1. Remember your shared identity. Remember your shared identity. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And it's clear that Paul's writing to believers. He actually states that in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. But his tactic seems a little bit confusing. The way that he phrases his statements, and what I mean is that he's almost posing a question. The word if at the beginning of verse 1, indicates a condition. And each of the four statements that follow are conditional depending on that if. 
So briefly, let's look at each one. First, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And what he speaks of is a a personal experience. I think we can read that and mistake Paul's intention. Paul's not saying, well, if Christ has any encouragement to offer, he's not pointing to a possibility of encouragement from Christ. He's directing the attention to a very real, personal experience. He's referring to what all believers receive as a benefit from their relationship with Christ, and that is a stream of grace. This grace is experienced in salvation. And it's a motivation for us. So the encouragement in Christ is the motivation that all believers experience in Christ, and that's the motivation due to the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. It's the truth of this sacrifice that serves us by moving and encouraging us to live in service to God. Not as enemies, but as his children. So we are encouraged in Christ, not as a simple cheering up, but a deep, burning motivation fueled by the grace we have experienced from his sacrifice. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, basically, if there is any motivation from the grace we experienced, and, and the answer to that is absolutely there is. His second conditional phrase immediately follows in verse 1. He says, if there is any comfort from love. Well, what's the comfort from love? It is the gentle tenderness you and I experience in the mercy and the forgiveness of God. There's so much comfort from that kind of love. Realizing that we've violated a holy God, when it's truly realized, is incredibly frightening. And it should be frightening. But for a believer, there's experienced a tender and gentle rest in the forgiveness and the mercy that's provided through Jesus. That's why dissension and division are so disgusting. If one is sowing discord, the issue is not that they're sinning against the establishment. They're not sinning against the leadership. They're sinning against God. Why? Well, because that choice to be divisive is a slap in the face of God who has extended mercy and forgiveness to you. Rather than being the wise servant who reflects what Jesus has done, that person is saying, God, I want to take all of the love and I want to take all of the mercy and I want to take all of the forgiveness that you offer, but I refuse to pour that out on the people you love. And Paul sees the need to remind these believers of that truth. So if there is any comfort from Love, Christ's love, and of course the conclusion we come to is that there definitely is. We look at the third conditional phrase. He says, if there is any participation in the Spirit. And now he moves from referencing Christ to referencing the work of the Holy Spirit. And while we don't have time to unpack all of the the, the scope of the ministry that the Holy Spirit accomplishes, I think there's a few major things worth mentioning. 
The Holy Spirit's at work in us to do something miraculous. He's shaping our hearts to reflect the heart of Jesus. And he's constantly at work. He loves to produce in us a growth that makes us more like the character of Christ. That is turning us into people that love what he loves, that do what he desires. People that become what we were purchased for, refined over time. This work of sanctification is a very real experience in the life of all believers. The Holy Spirit is at work in so many other ways. And one of those ways is establishing unity in the body. The Holy Spirit loves unity and is at work to unify the bride of Christ for the pleasure of Jesus and the glory of the Father. We need to recognize that. It is a work against the Spirit to sow discord and division. So we must realize that we're not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to God who is at work through his Spirit to unify believers and not divide them. So he says, if there's any participation from the Spirit, and we can conclude that absolutely there is. And his last phrase, if there's any affection and sympathy, also points to the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. The Holy Spirit, in his compassion, in his sympathy, is constantly interceding before the Father for you. He seeks exactly what the Father desires for your life. And he's the agent of grace and mercy in your life. So Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And what he points to is a reality. He points to something that's real. And that conditional word, if, is proven in the heart of a believer to be true. And if you're in Christ this morning, then you have experienced this. So we can take these phrases and correctly understand that Paul is saying, because. Because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the Spirit, and because there is affection and sympathy, we have a motivation for something. All of these speak of one great truth, the experience we have in salvation. And this experience is our identity. Our own ideas, our own ambitions, our dreams, our plans, none of those things are your identity. Instead, your identity is found in Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So the first remedy against division is a charge to remember our shared identity. The second remedy for division from our text, is found in verse 2. Commit to a unified participation. Commit to a unified participation. He says in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Paul lists four things. Same mind, same love, one accord and one mind. All of these are given in a very warm pastoral plea. He says, complete my joy. That's a, that's a loving, that's a caring plea. Paul says, it, it, it matters to me that you submit to the motivation of Christ and the motivation of the Spirit in this way. So what were they called to? What's, what's the command? What are they being commanded to? It's unity. It's unity. Not simply a like-mindedness, but such a unification of mind that is, it's as if it is one. What Paul is not commanding is that they all like the same foods, the same music, have the same preferences. He's talking about something way deeper. Unity in the gospel. Unity in purpose and pursuit. We can see that based on everything he laid out in verse 1. It's because of the gospel. It's because of your identity and your shared experience that we have, that we're called to unified thinking. Thinking in unison, functioning as a body without broken limbs. He's not calling them to be unified around any other kind of thinking or mindset except the mindset of God. The focus is on the purpose of God at work in us because of our identity. This new identity shapes our thinking, it shapes our vision, it shapes our purpose, and it ultimately determines our personal investment in seeking gospel-centered unity. Can I ask you a question this morning? What's your personal investment in gospel-centered unity? What's your personal investment in gospel-centered unity? Unity. We're called to this kind of participation. So he is pleading for them to participate in the unifying work of being gospel-centered together. And that might sound a little bit vague, but it's not some abstract thought that we're left to try to interpret. The, the one mind, the one accord, what is that? Well, thankfully, Paul goes on to clarify the mindset that he's pleading for. He doesn't just say, hey, everybody, we need to be of one mind. Now go decide what mind to be together. Well, he tells us the kind of mind that we're to participate in. And in order to do that, he starts by telling us what this mind is not. And, and I think that's helpful for me. I don't know how you guys understand and process things. But I process things better sometimes when people describe things from a negative perspective. What it's not before describing what it is. And Paul does that for us in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That brings us to the third remedy for division. Refuse self-exalting or self-preserving motivation. Refuse self-exalting or self-preserving motivation. Let's focus just for a moment on the first part of verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And this is diving straight to the heart of the issue. The issue with one who is divisive is a personal pride. 
And it shows up in two different approaches. First, in the heart of pride, a divisive person seeks to position themselves in a place to be heralded. And in a strong church like this, a person can start to do that one-on-one. When you hear someone use language that upholds their wisdom and upholds their values, you begin to see glimpses of that pride. They might not realize it, but they're described in verse 3 as having selfish ambition. Their ambition is not to build up others and support others, but instead support themselves and build themselves up. For you to view them as right, for you to view them as wise, for you to, to view the ones that maybe that they're accusing or tearing down as being of lesser value in their wisdom or their purposes. We're to rebuke people who speak like that. Not only that, but in our own hearts, we are to repent of that kind of selfish ambition, that ambition that seeks to accelerate a higher view of us in the minds of those in the body. When people begin to promote themselves, it always costs the reputation of others. Friends, be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for that in your own heart. The second and more common way that this divisive kind of pride shows up is in the person who builds walls of self-preservation. This person places a value on themselves or their own family so high that the church family that God has placed them in becomes nothing more than a Sunday seminar. This kind of heart might not seem so terrible, but it is, in fact, divisive. How is that divisive? Well, a person who is wrapped up in the benefit of themselves alone will ignore the needs and the experiences of those around them. This is particularly difficult for younger families. And there's many younger families here. Do you have a habit of neglecting the lives of those in your church family in order to build, protect, and benefit the lives of your immediate family? Please don't get me wrong. Your family should be of utmost priority. But it's all too easy to take that to the extreme. The extreme where Meeting the needs of your church family drops from being secondary to being obsolete. That's a kind of selfish ambition, an ambition that actually distances and ignores others. Paul also mentions conceit. Conceit is an evil self-exaltation, and it's defined as excessive pride in oneself. We must repent of that in our own hearts. Rebuke those who exhibit that in order to be like-minded together. And this is where the passage takes a major turn. Now that Paul has charged the Philippians to be unified in a gospel-centered mindset and shown what it's not, he goes on to show what that gospel-centered mindset is. 
Pick up in verse 3 where he says, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's our fourth and last remedy for division from our text this morning. Pursue a humble conviction. Pursue a humble conviction. Humility is an entire sermon by itself, but here in our text we see a basic sense of what humility accomplishes in us and through us. There's two aspects to this humble conviction described in verses 3 and 4. There's a perspective and there's a pursuit. Both of these together contribute not only to a personal shift in direction, but also a community shift in function. Let's see how this plays out. He first says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And humility is really, it's the key that unlocks this kind of perspective. Without humility, it is impossible to begin to think of others this way, more significant. But what strikes us is how everything that Paul laid out in verses 1 through 3 so far indicates the path to getting there. We're called to remember and keep in front of our brains what's been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. And we're called to remember the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. That's gospel-centered thinking. Gospel-centered thinking sees what has been accomplished and what is, being in accompl- what is being accomplished and responds in gratitude and a mindset that's in line with those same accomplishments. Humility is, get this, proof that the gospel has changed and is changing us. It's the mark of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, and the effect of his perfect work in us. Friends, the gospel itself is a radical work. And it is a radical work that produces radical change. When we look at verse 3 and see that we're called to esteem others as better, more significant than ourselves, that's radical. If we're honest, at the heart level, that is nearly impossible. But this radical way of thinking is possible through the radical work of God in Jesus Christ's work and his Holy Spirit's work in our heart. So a person who refuses to place a higher value on others than themselves is actually, listen, in opposition to the work that the gospel is accomplishing in their life. To pursue selfish ambition and self-preservation and self-exaltation is to ignore the ongoing call of the gospel in one's life. So counting others as more significant. How can we have that mindset? Think with me just for a moment. This is true of all of us. 
We only know our own hearts. And what we do know about our own hearts by our first-hand experience should automatically cause us to view ourselves as inferior. Why? Well, because I'm the ugliest and most sinful person that I know. The reason is that I can only see how deep my ugliness goes. I can only see the depth of that in my own heart. I can't see the depth of that in anybody else's heart. I can't see the extent of your obedience to the flesh, but I can see the extent of mine. On the flip side, a person who sees themselves as more important than others ignores that firsthand experience of personal wickedness and chooses to believe that everybody else is just a little bit uglier, a little bit less valuable. But Paul calls us to a radical opposite. And only the heart of someone who's being transformed by the gospel can think this way. Paul's not talking about what others might be on the inside. He's talking about what you and I know of ourselves. Compare that. Compare what you know about the wickedness of your heart and compare that to what you see on the outside of others. What you and I find when we do that is that we are at the bottom of the leaderboards of spirituality. Humility unlocks this kind of thinking. And when we finally stop placing such a high value on ourselves, the needs of those who we're esteeming now as higher on the leaderboards, the value and needs of others become more important to us. And the Holy Spirit does a whole lot more in us with that mindset. He says in verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is that humility taking action. It causes me and it causes you to pursue the good of others, the joy of others, the experience of others, the needs of others. That's what's the, that, the word interests, that's what it means. Interests can be understood as it's used to describe the good of others and what their needs really are. And so when you and I use the word in that same way in the English language, we say something like, it's in your best interest to brush your teeth. Right, Dr. Booker? It's in your best interest to brush your teeth. It's what's good for you to do. And if you don't do that, there's negative effects. It speaks of what's best. Do you know what kills, uh, what kills dissension? A church body that's full of people who are out on a mission to seek the good of others. Meeting their needs, seeking their joy, and when we all live this way, what you will find is that our needs get met. You know the people that, that I know at Countryside who get their needs met the most are the people who are seeking most to meet the needs of other people. 
Sometimes we can view that maybe backwards. Sometimes we can wonder why people aren't meeting my needs. Can I ask you a question? Are you holding everyone else to a standard that you are not fulfilling? Are you seeking to meet others' needs? Or are you waiting for everyone to meet yours? You know, I have so much more joy when I seek to meet the needs of others and someone else fulfills my needs. That's so much more joy than when I just try to meet my needs by myself. This can be a community where that experience fuels your joy together. If you are unified in that kind of mindset, if you allow yourself to gain an improper perspective of yourself, if you seek your own desires and your own interests and benefits instead of others, in the most basic sense, if you live for yourself, then you become a crack in the wall that allows division to slowly leak to the body. And what I love most is that after the buildup of Paul to this point, the experience from the gospel, the charge for humility, the call to action, all of these imperatives. One of the most beautiful parts of the entire New Testament is laid out beginning in verse 5. And I just want to read that in closing. Look at verse 5. Have this mind. What mind? Well, the mind he just described. That kind of humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the model. That's what you look at to say, what is this mind, this mindset, this humility? How does this play out? Well, this is how it played out perfectly in the life of Jesus. So do you love what's going on here in this church family? Do you love the people here? Do you love the direction and pursuit of the deacons here and the leadership and pastor here?
Do you love the way God's blessing this special and unique church family? Will you personally have an opportunity to experience a joy that is more fierce and more intense than you ever have before? Pursue this kind of community that thrives. Rebuke those who speak divisively. Repent of selfish ambition and self-preservation. And let the, the truth of your gospel experience in Christ rule over your opinions of others here. And as a church, together, esteem one another as better than yourself. In that, you will be motivated to seek a humility that builds a joyful church. Let's pray. Lord, seeing this text this morning is convicting because as you help us look at our own hearts, expressions of our prideful natures are littered all over our own lives and our experiences. And the truth is that the kind of humility that was exemplified through Jesus and that is called for in this passage is impossible for us. And so, Lord, on our own strength, we cannot get there. But nothing is too hard for you. You can take us who are often self-absorbed and self-preserving and you can turn us radically into creatures who love others with the kind of humility that Jesus did and does. And you can produce that in us through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to not resist that work. You would help us to seek that kind of humility and submit to that kind of unity that your spirit's building here. Lord, I pray that you would do wondrous works in the unity of this church family here in Lawrence, that you would meet needs dramatically in amazing ways that can only be attributed to your power. Your power in the hearts of people producing this kind of humility. Thank you for modeling that for us with the perfect model in Christ Jesus. And I pray that we would be moved today to not just be people who accept the gospel, but be people who are changed and who are changing because of the work of the gospel in us. In Jesus' name, amen.